This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast, number 61, Good News. I'm Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Here's what I have for you this week. I've been preaching about repentance. God is ready to bring sinful mankind into his kingdom, but mankind is not ready. I've been reading Why I Believe the King James Bible is the Word of God by Peter Ruckman. Nehushtan lives. I've been hearing how conversions are impossible for some. I believe in a stronger God than that. I've been playing World's Fair 1893. The wonders God has given his people in this life are only superseded by the wonders he has in store. Here's what I've been preaching. Believe in the gospel. That is what Jesus said at the beginning of his ministry. Mark chapter 1 and verse 14 and 15 tell us that. Gospel literally means good news. Most of you are aware of that. It's a derivative of the German, which literally translates as good news. The word in the Greek that we have as gospel means good news, glad tidings. And why wouldn't it be good news? After all, we're talking about the salvation of souls. We touched on 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in last week's podcast and how we are given the death and burial and resurrection gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul emphasizes this. And because Jesus has died, because he has been raised, we have the opportunity to walk in newness of life here. We have opportunity to go to heaven after this life is over. Uh, What better news could there be? Why would you not believe it? And yet, clearly, many people don't. And why is that? Why is it that we find it so impossible to believe the best message ever? If you were to convince me that I had won some kind of sweepstakes, if my meal at my favorite restaurant was free, I could come around to that. This is the best possible message. Why would somebody not believe that? Well, it is inherent in the passage that we're referring to here. Before you believe in the gospel, before it has its full effect on you at least, Jesus says you have to repent. And repentance is tricky. Repentance presupposes that there is something to repent of, something in your own life to repent of, which is to say there is sin. And now there's a lot of people who will balk at the idea of sin in a general sense, that there is no such thing as right and wrong. Who am I to say that somebody's behavior is inherently objectionable, that there's something that is wrong with their choices, as it were? Uh, we'll talk about postmodernism and relative truth maybe another time. But, but we've seen this all over the place in the news and in the media and such. It's kind of strange, I think, that, that people think that They are absolutely right in telling me that I can't say that something is absolutely wrong. But again, that's postmodernism another time. But there is sin. And the Bible tells us that extensively and and consistently. And a lot of people are, I would say most people, are, are willing to still come around to that idea. But sin in their own life, that's a little bit different. That there is something that you have done, that you are accountable for, that you uh, are to blame for. That's tougher. It's a lot easier to stand in judgment against other people and and allow our own choices to go unchecked. And, And then if somehow we were to come around to the idea that there is sin and there is sin in my life and I do, in fact, need to do something about it, the the tendency oftentimes is to put that burden on ourselves. I will work myself out of this. I've got this. Jesus, I'll I'll be there for you. Just watch me. I'll do 
do tremendous things here for you. I, I will prove myself. And that's what it boils down to. It's all about me. It's about how wonderful I am. I'm better than most. And if you give me half a chance, I will prove it to you. But that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not a gospel that tells us how wonderful we are. This is a gospel that tells us how wonderful our Savior is and how unworthy we are. And that's difficult to listen to. The idea of repenting is not something that we want to do. But Jesus makes it very clear that this kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven, as Matthew refers to it in his account, this kingdom that the Jews have been looking forward to all of their lives, for centuries, looking forward to forward to the realization of the, the actual spiritual kingdom of God on earth. Exactly what form it was going to take, they were a little fuzzy on, but they believed in the kingdom. They believed it was coming, that, that this new David would arise. And, and here it is. And the very first part of this message is, you're not ready for this. You're not good enough for this. You have to repent. You have to turn your life around. Change fundamentally. Again, with the being born again that we keep referring to in the Nicodemus story in, in John 3.3. 3. You have to be born again. You as yourself are not worthy of this. And that's difficult for us to take. We have to completely change our outlook if we come to Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it talks about being not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. This total mental makeup, this transformation of mind and of attitude, being led by the Spirit instead of being led by our own devices, our own thinks, our own preferences, as Paul writes about in Romans chapter 8, verse 14. This is going to be what separates us from what he calls the natural man. The instinctive man, the intuitive man that is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse number 14. The one who cannot receive this gospel. We have to overcome that. We have to push past that. If you can come to the idea that you are accountable for your own sins, that it's your fault, then not only can you receive this kingdom, but you can allow its rule to dominate your life today and for the rest of your life as you continue to repent, as you continue to turn your life toward God, toward Jesus, toward his example. That is not going to be an easy transformation. It's not going to happen in the baptism or, or anything else, any other single event. This is not an event. This is a lifestyle choice. But if you choose repentance as a lifestyle, then God can choose you for this kingdom and bring you marvelous, marvelous things. But again, you're not ready for it yet. If you haven't repented yet, you have to repent first. Anyway, that's what I've been preaching. This is what I've been reading. Dr. Peter S. Ruckman, B-A-B-D-M-A-T-H-M-P-H-D, was a fixture in the Pensacola community for years. He is most famous for his belief in what has been derisively called Ruckmanism. Uh, that basically means that the King James Bible is the only Bible that's actually the Word of God. And beyond the King James Version, the 1611 Version, of the King James Bible. I never had a chance to meet Dr. Ruckman. Uh, I'd never had a chance to discuss this matter with him, but I have read his book, a short book, Why I Believe the King James Bible is the Word of God. And based on this book here, I'm actually rather pleased that I did not have a chance to talk to him. This is probably the worst book 
that I own as far as readability and understandability and uh, probably makes the worst argumentation of any book trying to prove a point uh, that I've ever read. And, and the, I will admit that I had some preconceived notions about this. I think the idea that one particular translation of the Bible is sacrosanct, that is bordering on idolatry. I think it's just wrong. I think it puts way too much emphasis on individual people and limits the power of God. But I've been wrong before, and I was at least interested in hearing the argumentation, hearing why it is that someone would believe something that seems on the surface to be so strange and something that is so completely and totally rejected by the overwhelming percentage of the so-called Christian community. So I read the book, and it was... About two-thirds of it consists of screeds against people who dared to think that he was wrong about these kind of things. But he does make a couple of points, at least. Uh, these are examples of the kind. And there are very many points, by the way, but I'll, I'll share a couple of them with you. He believes that the King James Bible is the Word of God because it was translated under a king. Which is to say King James, of course, of England. The And then he refers to Ecclesiastes 8, verse 4, where the, the word of king is, there is power. And so, therefore, any translation done under the auspices of a king is inherently superior to any other kind of translation. Uh, there's taking passages out of context, and then there's that. That's completely and totally missing the point. But he does worse than that. There, there's also a point that he makes about God's promise to preserve his word. God has promised to preserve his word, and so therefore the King James Bible is the one that we need to read. And then he refers to Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7, which tells us that God will preserve his word. It's, it's like silver that's been refined in the fire, that he will preserve his word. But, of course, David wasn't talking about the King James Bible when he wrote that. It seems like David is proving the opposite point. And it also brings up the subject of where was God's word before 1611? If King James put together the word of God, the definitive word of God, then not only are all other translations wrong, but there was no word of God before 1611. At least for practical purposes, there wasn't. And that just scratches the surface on the practical and spiritual and, and archaeological and philosophical problems with this, this theory here. I don't, I don't recommend the book at all, but if you choose to, you can go to his church slash bookstore slash think tank slash institute and order a copy of it. I'm sure they'd be glad to give you one. The The bigger point that I want to make with regard to this kind of thing is regarding what 2 Kings 18 verse 4 calls Nehushtan. And before I get into this, let me emphasize, if you want to read the King James Bible, go right ahead and, and read the King James Bible. If you want to read the 1611 version, the original before the update, the one written in Shakespearean English, you want to read that Bible, then God bless you. Go for it. Uh, let me know how that turns out, by the way. I think it's going to be a, a shocking experience if you never tried to do that. But sure, absolutely, go right ahead. And I do not mean to diminish the efforts or the importance of the King James Bible or the King James Committee in the slightest. It's one of the, the greatest accomplishments and the greatest blessings that was ever given to mankind in the last five centuries. That being said, the idea that one work of men, and they were men, by the way, I know that 
Mr. Rugman uh, thinks they may have been inspired by God. I don't believe that. I see no reason to believe that. They were human beings. And the idea that one work of men, regardless of how great it was, regardless how much good it has done, that this is somehow divine is blasphemous. Nehushtan, if you don't remember, was the quote-unquote piece of brass. That's what Nehushtan means. That was formed actually in the wilderness in the book of Numbers when Moses was presiding over the people of God and they were rebelling as they always did. Uh, God told him to make a bronze serpent and put it up on, uh, on a stand and the people would look at it and when they did, they would be healed. And apparently it worked and obviously it was preserved. And in Hezekiah's day, centuries after this, it was still there and it was being worshipped as though it were divine, as though it had conveyed any kind of healing power. And the, the parallel between that story and the King James story is, is palpable. It's not that the serpent was a bad thing. It was a wonderful thing. It was a blessing from God. But the idea that the gospel could be contained within a particular volume is nonsense. And it limits the power of God. God is capable of preserving his word. Absolutely. Through the work and sometimes despite the mistakes of the translators and the scholars that put it together. Time does not permit to discuss the, the mistakes, the outright mistakes that were in the 1611 or the 1730 King James Bibles. There are plenty of them, despite what Mr. Ruckman might want to argue. God is able to get past that and preserve his word regardless of what we think of it, regardless of what kind of preconceived notions we may bring into it. The true word of God is, in fact, preserved, and we will never be without it. What a tremendous blessing that is. Again, thank God for the King James Bible. It was a, a tremendous blessing to us, proved that ordinary people could read the Bible. But rest assured, the Bible existed long before 1611 and will continue to exist long after. Anyway, that's what I've been reading. This is what I've been hearing. We don't hear very much about conversion therapy anymore. Uh, conversion therapy is what they used to call the process of taking sinners in general, but more often than not, much more often than not, I was talking about homosexuals, and fixing them, as it were. Curing them of their homosexuality. And the reason you don't hear about it very much anymore is because our society has more or less moved past this. Uh, we went from a society that rejected homosexuality almost universally to one that was open to the possibility, but that acknowledged that there were certain obvious problems with it, to, well, hey, you know what, live and let live, uh, the idea of... of uh, changing them. It's just wrong. We need to accept them the way they are. And now more or less homosexuality is presented by it, many people in many circles as being an inherently good thing. That it is a blessing to the world. It's a blessing to humanity. Anyway, I don't care to get into a big discussion about homosexuality, particularly here. We can talk about that another time. But back when we were trying to convert homosexuals, the argument went that these organizations, these symposiums, seminars, cults, you know, whatever you want to call them, that were 
curing homosexuality were only successful about 33% of the time. And because they were only successful 33% of the time, that means they didn't work. Now think about that for a little bit. If it only works 33% of the time, it doesn't work. You know, you'll win a lot of batting titles if we ever start playing baseball again. If you are a 333 hitter. If you hit the ball one time out of three, does that mean that hits don't exist? No, it just means that it is the exception to the rule, as it were. And I'm prepared to acknowledge that homosexuality, like smoking, like drinking, like drug addiction, like any other kind of behavior, can be and oftentimes is extraordinarily difficult to break. Oftentimes, I think, as is the case with with drugs and alcohol and smoking, the real problem is they don't really want to fix it. They don't really want to change, as it were, either because it's simply comfortable the way they are or because they like the lifestyle in general. They, they have no desire, really, to change no matter what mommy and daddy are trying to pay for. It's not about the process. It's about the attitude of the person in the process. And I certainly am not in position here to judge particular programs. I don't know anything about these programs. I suppose they probably still exist someplace. What I want to talk about is the gospel, because the gospel is the ultimate transformation program, the ultimate conversion process. In fact, the idea of conversion is all over the New Testament. I'll refer you especially to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and following. Or Paul writes, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, he says. But you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Now, I'm not sure I would go so far as to say that proves that there were recovering homosexuals in the church in Corinth. I think that probably such were some of you as a reference to the sinful lifestyle in general, and sometimes the extraordinarily sinful and grotesque sinful lifestyle that was quite common, actually, in Corinth at the day. Such were some of you. You rejected not just the gospel, but lifestyle of a decent and, and wholesome sort entirely. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. You found a way out of that. And it begins with being washed, by the way. It begins with being baptized. Let's not overmake that point in this context, but that commitment, that public commitment, I'm going to be better. I'm going to show everybody that I want to be better. That's what this is all about. You can get from one kingdom into the other. The Colossians had done that. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. They had been transferred out of one kingdom into the other kingdom, into the kingdom of, of God's beloved son. It can happen. It does happen. But you have to believe in the process. You have to participate in the process. You have to believe. The gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Romans 1, verse 16 tells us that. If you believe in the gospel, you can be and you will be changed by it. It doesn't matter what your sin, it doesn't matter how long you've been in it. If you want to change, the gospel can and will change you. You can be converted. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. 
If you would have stopped listening at this point and go your way, I hope you've found the message instructive, inspiring, and most of all, faithful to God's Word. Please don't forget to like, rate, share, subscribe, and follow. But if you stick around for a few more minutes, I would like to share with you a way to amuse yourself in a wholesome manner while waiting here in Satan's world, and perhaps pick up a spiritual point or two in the process. This is what I've been playing. When we discovered World's Fair 1893 as a board game, we enjoyed it very much and we played it because it's an interesting, although not necessarily very thematic, game. It features a lot of the, the exhibitions that were held at that event in agriculture, in production, and, and just basically the wonders of the day, art, etc., how amazing the world was in that day. And some, some famous faces, Cyrus McCormick, who invented the Reaper, and, and uh, Charles Schwab, who did not, in fact, invent the stock exchange or anything like that. People came from all over the place to gawk at what had been done in America. And I was really more or less ignorant of that when I was playing the game. But when I thought that this might make an interesting segment in the podcast, I went back and did some research and I was blown away by what happened. This was the 400th anniversary of Columbus's uh, discovery, quote unquote, discovery of the of the new world. I realized that we don't celebrate that quite like we did back 100 and whatever years ago, but it was quite an event back in that day. Scott Joplin became a famous piano player at the 1893 Columbian Exhibition or World's Fair. Buffalo Bill Cody was wanting to participate in this. They wouldn't allow him to do it. So he camped out outside. Huge mistake by the event coordinators. He got to keep all of his money instead of sharing it with the people there at, at the exhibition. But they were not lacking for entertainment. John Philip Sousa and his band were playing there. Frederick Douglass was the national representative from Haiti. There was a, a, a teacher named Catherine Lee Bates, who was so impressed by the White City exhibition there that she used that as a as the inspiration for her Alabaster Cities that were prominently featured in the the song she wrote called America the Beautiful. Helen Keller was there. Uh, Alexander Graham Bell was there. Uh, Harry Houdini performed. Uh, Nikola Tesla set off a wireless lamp in his hand. Just so much incredible technological and artistic and uh, just general improvement upon the world. It was a celebration of what America had been able to do in 400 years. And it was a thing to gawk at. Everyone in the world was astounded at this. And even more so by what the future lay in store, what, what marvelous things might come. In the, if we were able to get this far in 400 years, what might 400 more years bring? When I was thinking what had taken place in the lives of God's people over 2,000 years of history, it reminded me a bit of what Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, and starting verse 4, for by these, that is by the glory and excellence that Jesus Christ provides for us, by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you become, may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. What an amazing thing it is to be able to say that about ourselves, that we used to be children of the devil, and now we are children of God that we have been transformed. And I realize that we haven't been perfectly transformed yet. We're still working on this. God's still working on us. 
the, the lusts of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the, the pride of life, they're still in there. They're still find their way to the surface from time to time. But God is working on us. God is purifying our hearts and purifying our hands, cleansing us as we go, converting us, changing us from the inside out. What a marvelous thing that is. And if we persist in this behavior, if we continue to, as he goes on to send the next few verses, add to our faith, virtue and knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love or charity. If we continue to do these things, this process is going to continue with us. And we're going to get more and more like what God wants us to be. This is where we have come on earth, as it were. This is the kingdom of God on earth that has been realized as much as can be realized in the flesh. But we as the people of God are not looking primarily to the past. We're not looking back at just at how far we have come. Our vision is greater than that. We are looking to the future. We are looking to what God is going to do in us. And I don't mean that we're going to lust less and that we're going to be less prideful and less selfish and, and all those kind of things. Yes, we are. Hopefully, with God's help, we will do those things. But God has much greater things in mind for us than that. God has a world that is completely non-fleshly, that does not pertain to physical things at all. And after having discussed these, these so-called Christian graces that uh, he lists earlier in the chapter, he concludes this discussion in verse number 10, still in chapter 1 in 2 Peter. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Make sure you're in this kingdom. Make sure you accept his good news. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. You are kingdom citizens now. You are partakers in the kingdom in the flesh now to a certain degree. But there is an eternal kingdom, one that has not been realized and cannot be realized in the flesh. And if we persist in this choice of behavior, if we go in God's direction, he promises us, that we will be partakers of future glories that will make these glories look like nothing. What an amazing thing that is for us to look forward to. And what an encouragement that should be for us to bear down and endure difficult times and purify ourselves, again, from the inside out. Allow God to do his work in us. And when we get discouraged from time to time, not lose heart. Realize that this is just a process. It's unrealized. It's unperfect, imperfect, although God is perfect and his plan is perfect. We're not. One of these days we will be. One of these days we're going to be taken into the perfect eternal kingdom. What a glorious thing that future is going to be. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe if you have not already. Shares, ratings, comments, and questions are always welcome. Feel free to reach out to me on social media with any questions or suggestions. And watch my YouTube channel and our website, www.halhammonds.com, for articles, sermons, and notifications regarding other content. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.